0: Welcome to the Truth Exchange Podcast, the program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 125. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gielo, and today I have a special guest with me. It's Dr. Thaddeus Williams. He is one of our senior teaching fellows. He is a associate professor at Talbot Theological gonna uh, uh, get that. Talbot Theological Seminary. He also teaches jurisprudence at Trinity Law School. He's involved with Blackstone Legal Fellowship, Federal Society, as well as teaches at LaBrie Fellowship in Switzerland and Holland. Dr. Williams, thanks for being on the program today.
1: Absolutely. It's good to see you, brother. It's good to see
0: you. You know, it's been, we were talking just prior to the recording of this, but, um, it's been five years yeah, since you've last been a part of Truth Exchange. And um, I assume a lot has happened, but um, including some of your – you've got two books out, one of which just hit the shelf confronting – or no, you've got three books. Excuse me. You have your, your uh, uh, Faith, Love, Love Freedom, and then you've yeah. got Reflect, and yeah. then you have Confronting – injustice this one here just hit is actually is out on amazon or it's going to be hitting amazon next week
1: yeah it's available for pre-order right now and there's all kinds of little pre-order perks you're going to get some uh some top secret videos of me answering you know explosive questions about systemic racism from a biblical perspective and and things like that. And uh, yeah, all kinds of incentives to pre-order, but the official release date is December 22nd. So we're just, what, two weeks away.
0: Okay. We have a um, online symposium scheduled for the spring of 2021, which you will be one of our speakers and your topic is on um, evangelism, but the symposium is called the state of our disunion and Dr. Jones framed the symposium with a question by saying, We're asking, how should Christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in in today's caustic and hostile culture? Like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that, how businesses and schools should function during COVID-19. We're divided over how Christians should vote or should have voted now. Still not sure what is going on with the elections.
1: It's nuts. It's bonkers.
0: I mean, we're, so today's what, the 4th?
1: Yep. 3rd. December 3rd, yeah.
0: And then uh, December 11th is when we have possibly find out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's officially been a month since Election Day. <laughs> it's madness.
0: It is madness. Um, we're divided over, uh, to some extent, over identity and sexuality. We're divided over issues of race and social justice. The divisions threaten the charity and unity we knew in the past, which now provokes serious disunity and even expressions of sin. Such divisions go deep and threaten the state of biblical orthodoxy for years to come. Your talk on evangelism, but I assume is going to probe deeper than the issue or the of going one on one and knocking on someone 's door and say, "Hi, have you heard about jesus or have you have you believed um, Evangelism is far more than uh, just winning an argument, it's winning the person. Um, but in, in today's landscape, I mean, it seems it seems so besides besides having the social distance now, which is a new problem that arises for evangelism. Um, what what is the landscape of what are the, or what are the problems in the landscape of evangelism today?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. There's, there's a handful of them. Um, one of the main ones are would be the stereotype that, you know, Christians are on the wrong side of history. Um, Christians are the oppressors. If you read, say, you know, Robin DiAngelo's best-selling uh, White Fragility in some of her follow-up books, she has these charts that she lays out on You know, who counts on the hierarchy of oppression? You know, who who are the oppressed? Who are the oppressors? And she lays it out very clearly that if you hit the trifecta of being a white, straight Christian male, you are the source of all the evils of the cis, hetero, patriarchal, white supremacist Western culture. Um, And so you have that stereotype to contend with. Uh, that Christians are have been and continue to be on the wrong side of history. Well, I, uh, you know, in the book in confronting Injustice without compromising truth, I, I do some work to, to dispel the, that myth. You know, I, I cite some of the research that when it comes to actually loving the poor with your time and resources, Christians are outpacing all other demographics in the United States by a long shot. And so there's, certain stereotype out there that, oh, because Christians by and large tend to be opposed to big government redistribution of wealth policies, therefore they they could give a rip about the poor. And it's a very common stereotype. And, and a lot of younger Christians in particular get duped by that and think, well, if I'm going to care for the poor, I better sign up for this political party. Uh, so, so that's one of the things that just flatly contradicts the hard evidence. There was a study done in Philadelphia in 2018 by a non-religious research organization. And they looked at a dozen faith communities in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And what they found was that uh, these congregations of believers in a single year generated over $50 million worth of economic benefit to their communities. And so because that isn't you know, state-sponsored, it's not a government redistribution of wealth, the narrative is, well, Christians don't give a rip about the poor. It's just false. Mm-hmm. So, so I find that that's one of the biggest obstacles to evangelism these days is just um, debunking the stereotypes that Christians are perpetually on the wrong side of history. And a lot of Christians um, play into that shame game, mm-hmm. um, Where we need to just take an apologetic posture towards everything. And it's like, look at your Christian history. You have a lot to be proud of when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the first and second century, um, from the bottom up, overturning infanticide in the Roman Empire, where little unwanted babies were literally thrown on human dumps. And it was our brothers and sisters who understood the gospel Mm -hmm. that said, because we've been adopted by the Father with a capital F, the creator of the universe. We're going to go take these unwanted image bearers and adopt them as our cherished sons and daughters. Fast forward to the second and third centuries, these these plagues break out that devastate the Roman Empire. And most of the non-Christians are running from the hills. This world's all I got, so I'll be damned if you're going to take that from me. And so our brothers and sisters run to the bedsides of the plagued, often getting sick and dying right alongside of them. Um, we have, you know, the abolitionist movements of Wilberforce in the UK and the Clapham sect in the United States with Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth um, and others. Uh, Christianity, if you read uh, Thomas Sowell, he's got a book called uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And Sowell has a chapter on the real history of slavery, where he unpacks the fact that Slavery had existed in every culture. It was a universal down through the ages. You found it uh, in the Middle East. You found it. there was more slaves in China and India than the entire Western hemisphere combined. There was slavery in Northern America. By the time uh, Columbus set sail on the ocean blue, slavery was already well-established in North America. Mm. There was more slaves in Brazil and South America than in all of North America. And he says this had gone on until the 18th and 19th century when it was Christians because of good theology who understood the Imago day that people are people, not property. It was Christians who spearheaded the abolitionist movement, not just in the UK and America, but through their reach and influence, they helped abolish slavery all over the world. They stamped it out in the Middle East. They stamped it out uh, in Australia. They stamped it out. Uh, in Africa. They stamped it out in South America. So I know it's a long answer to a short question, but part of it is just we're up against a stereotype that ignores the fact that Christians were on the forefront of combating Nazism. Christians were on the forefront of combating and making slavery illegal. Christians were on the forefront of battling plagues and overturning infanticide, and those trends continue on into the present day. But again, you have a very powerful media pushing a narrative that says, basically all Christians are enemies of the human race.
0: There's also, besides stereotypes, there's also a lot of um, um, uh, redefining history. Yep.
1: Going on, uh,
0: I'm trying to think, was that the 1619 or 1618 project, for for instance? Yep. Um You know, it, it, you know every, every year it's like Columbus Day comes around and they go, oh, let's celebrate. Let's, it's now let's celebrate Indigenous Day.
1: Yeah. It, it, well, make a mistake, there were times in, in the history of the church that the church misrepresented Jesus pretty radically. I mean, there was times in American history that um, people naming the name of Jesus were advocating straight up racism. That's a hard fact of history. There is a history of inquisitions and Salem witch burnings and and crusades. But I got to ask myself, which Christians actually merit the title Christian? Mm. Which ones actually embody scripture? The ones who are, you know, treating black people like property are the ones who are leading abolitionist movements as an implication of the doctrine of the Imago Dei. You know, not everything called Christian is the real McCoy.
0: Yeah, can you hear something? I I've seen a lot lately, specifically in reform circles, is um, you can get the gospel right, but you can also, but you can get issues like justice wrong. So they they'd point to like the Puritans, or they'd point to you know um, Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, and say, well, these men these men had slaves. And I, I've now seen it. It's now gotten to the point. I've now seen it where they're questioning were these men actually believers, yeah. right? So we're actually saying that uh, because of this kind of man stealing, they're questioning uh, whether or not that person actually was united to Christ. How would you? How would you walk with somebody who would either a say that or? Um, is being discipled under that that kind of new trajectory of, of thought?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, that, that's part of the beauty of Christianity. Christ is the center. Christ is our sole allegiance. And so it's not, you know, Paul faced a version of this issue in the first century where people were saying, you know, I follow Apollos, so I follow... Uh, Peter, I'd follow Paul, I'd follow so-and-so. And Paul reiterates that, look, we are Christians. We aren't Paulinists. We aren't Apollians. Um, and so I, I would start there um, by saying those hypocrisies of church history aren't a deal-breaker for your relationship. It shouldn't be a deal-breaker for your relationship with Christ, who's the center of Christianity. Secondly, I would say um, we shouldn't defend the sins of the saints as if they weren't sins. Hmm. I, I look at, I love Martin Luther. He's been a huge inspiration to me over the years. <laughs> he helped me reach a deeper biblical understanding of the gospel of Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christa, Soli Deo Gloria. He, he did a lot for me and God used Luther in my life in some pretty instrumental ways. But that doesn't mean I'm now committed to defend his rabid anti-Semitism, right? Towards the end of his life, um, he published some pretty horrifically, and I would argue heretical things hmm. about Jewish image bearers of God. I don't have to defend that. Right. So, so it's not an either or. It's not all black and white. You can pull lots of babies from the bathwater. And that's hmm. the way I think about Edwards. I'm not going to... Sit here and try to defend him owning image bearers of God as if that's somehow defensible because it's not. But I can pull the babies from the bathwater and say his work on freedom of the will is groundbreaking and will deepen your understanding of the sovereignty of God. I can say his religious affections is a powerful exposition of how God changes hearts. I can say that his um, unoriginal sin or fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. is work. There's still a lot of fruit that can be picked and enjoyed there, and the same thing for Whitfield. Whitfield's understanding of the need for repentance, salvation by grace, is deeply inspiring because it's biblically true, not because his life perfectly embodying those truths. Mm -hmm. So that would be my my second big point, is is we don't defend it. Um, Don't defend the sins of the saints. And then thirdly, um, use those historic examples. This is actually something that, that comes from uh, Jonathan Edwards in some of his journal entries. He talks about how, um, just to paraphrase him, he says, whenever I see what is odious in another, odious, like it's, it's stinky, it's rancid. It's, if I see something rank in another, instead of using that as an opportunity for self-righteousness, he calls it improving upon, improving upon the sins of others. And by that, he means using the sins of others as a mirror into ourselves. Hmm. And he says, if I see what is odious in them, I need to ask the question, is that same odiousness in me? And so not exempting ourselves self-righteously, but saying, hey, if, if Whitfield and Edwards could have this, this deep hypocrisy, where is that in my heart? Holy Spirit, search me. Know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And in that way, we we improve upon the sins of others. And we can look at historic examples like Charles Spurgeon, right? The great uh, reformed, the Prince of Preachers. right? You know, he was starting orphanages. He was reaching out to uh, people who were really hurting, not in spite of, but because of his gospel convictions. And so uh, that would be a fourth point is look at the ones who actually um, were on the right side of those yeah.
0: questions. Yeah. In terms of um, evangelism, justice is, is uh, well, let me see how we could put this. Justice is going to be uh, a recurring theme throughout the symposium. And I'm curious how, how you're, you will, uh, and if you will actually tie your talk into to that issue of justice specifically um and based on your latest your recent work social justice could we camp out on that and first by doing that can we define terms what is justice um and is there a difference between justice and social justice and and then third Uh, What is the biblical worldview of those two, if there is two?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good question. So uh, in the book, I draw a distinction between, uh, you know, in confronting injustice without compromising truth, just to give another shameless plug there. (laughs) Um, I draw a distinction between social justice A, which is my term for the biblically compatible kind. So this would be everything I mentioned a minute ago. Christians going to the human dumps and rescuing Roman society's unwanted children. Mm -hmm. This would be efforts today to end human trafficking that's carried out by brothers and sisters in Christ. This would be efforts today to stop the slaughter, the Holocaust of the unborn. This would be William Wilberforce and all the names I listed, the Clapham sect and Sojourner Truth and and Fred Douglas um, fighting the transatlantic slave trade, that's all deeply biblical, Uh, it's biblically compatible, and so I would call that social justice A. So by justice in that context, I mean giving others what they're due. Giving others their due uh, is is I think a a pretty rock solid definition. Mm -hmm. And when I say others, to get justice right, we have to start with the ultimate other, the capital O other. Right in a twoist worldview, where there's a, like you said from Romans 1, a fundamental creator-creature distinction, we have to start with the godhood of God Mm -hmm. and giving the ultimate other his due. That's the mark of social justice A. You're starting with God and his word to define justice and what it looks like in the real world. On the other hand, you have what in the book I call social justice be. This is the biblical, the unbiblical kind that sadly is duping a whole lot of Christians in the 21st century. And so this would be um, a redefinition of justice that says, um, if I am a biological male that I identify as a female, and you refuse to adopt my preferred pronouns, I am now a victim of injustice, of social Mm -hmm. injustice. You are the white, cis, hetero, patriarchal oppressor. Try to square that redefinition of justice with the biblical definition of justice, and you're trying to to fit a a square peg in a round hole. They just Mm -hmm. don't fit together. Um, you, You have, under social justice B, The idea that all of humanity should be divided into tribes, intersectional tribes, um, and then parsed out based on their perceived level of oppression. And so what you end up with is identity politics and intertribal warfare. That's not biblical justice. Biblical justice starts from the premise that we are united in Adam, in our fallenness, so I can never... Cite skin color, social status, or sex to say, you know, I'm immune from sin and corruption because I'm in this oppressed group.
0: What's intersectionality?
1: So, intersectionality is the idea that um, oppression doesn't just happen on a single axis, mm. uh, they intersect so that based on where you stand in this hierarchy of oppression, you can be doubly oppressed if you're, um, say, black on a social justice B understanding, you're automatically oppressed. You're the victim of you know, widespread systemic racism. Uh, but if you're black and male, you're better off than a black female because the presumption is we live in a patriarchy. So men have male privilege that women don't. So a black man is better off than a black woman. He's, he's less oppressed. Well, then you throw sexuality into the intersections here a straight black woman is better off, she's less oppressed, than a lesbian black woman. And so if I'm a black lesbian woman, and let's say, you know, then you have abled bodiness. If you have a um, disabled lesbian black woman, you're basically, you know, you're, you're, you've hit the apex right. of well, what, about, what, about, what about
0: What about transgender?
1: So, I mean, yeah, could,
0: yep. could you be a, um, a black dude who is, is gay, uh, but then he says, I'm going to be transgender. I mean, do, doesn't that almost like, at what point does this system start to eat itself?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I remember you talking years and years ago about, uh, were you at UCSD? Yeah. Talk about that big snake. Yeah. It was eating its own tail. Yeah. Um, th- this ideology becomes that. Because take the the case in the headlines uh, just this week. Mm -hmm. You had, you know, the star uh, actor from Inception, Juno, Umbrella Academy. Do you remember her name?
0: Ella Page.
1: Ella Page. Ella Page
0: or Ellen Page.
1: Yeah. And so Ellen Page married a woman uh, and she was, you know, out of the closet, a proud lesbian. Mm Mm-hmm. Well well think just try to wrap your head around what happened this week. She's married to a woman, so that woman is lesbian. But now that Ellen Page has decided to become Elliot Page and and transition to identifying as a male, does that magically mean that her wife is now straight? Right. You see the problem? Like if if Ellen Page, now Elliot Page, is male because she identifies as male, by her exercise of autonomy and self-definition, she's now actually taken the freedom from her, quote, spouse to identify as a gay woman because now all of a sudden she's straight. And and so you're right. These ideologies – because they cut against the grain, the structure of creation, as embedded by the creator, they, they can't sustain it. They buckle under their own weight.
0: Yeah.
1: The snake eats its own tail at the end of the day. Which isn't to say we shouldn't have a ton of compassion. I mean, I, I read her story and I just thought, how heartbreaking yeah. that here you have a girl, a biological woman, who has been sold an ideology that tells her you get to define yourself. Let let me just be flat out blunt about this. That ideology that you get to identify yourself, you get to construct and sustain your own identity, it's just mean. Mm. It's mean. And it's mean because constructing and sustaining an identity, is a creator-sized task. Yeah. It's a creator-sized task. You put that impossible weight of identity construction on the shoulders of a creature, a fallen creature, and what happens is we buckle under the weight. I've seen this in years of ministry. As, as young people buy into this ideology, I have to go find myself, I have to follow my heart, I have to be true to myself they buckle under the weight of that because now creatures are trying to shoulder a creator-sized task of identity. Wow.
0: That is a really good way to put it. And, 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 and now it's even being put on children.
1: Yep.
0: Right? I mean, let your children decide what sex they want to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, I was working about 40 feet that way. This was about a year ago when I was working on the book. And I was working on this very section talking about um, I unpack it theologically how but let me nerd out to Genesis one and two with you for a minute uh, I've been baffled for years by the the claim that temptation by the time you get to Genesis three of um, the serpent's promise serpent's deceptive promise you will be. Like God, knowing good and evil. It would be like God knowing good and evil. I didn't really understand what that phrase meant. Um, yeah, it is a weird it, one. It's a strange one, and and so here, let me just unpack this because there's so much insight here for exegeting this cultural moment yeah. from that phrase. So some of the interpretations range from, well. They, they didn't have any intellectual category for evil in the garden. And so by sinning, they would come to this new realization. Oh, there's this thing called evil in the universe. Um, or maybe they would gain an experiential knowledge of evil. Uh, because before the fall, they only had, you know, say a hypothetical understanding of it. Right. So they would come and experience it. But the text says it would be like God, knowing good and evil. And like God, God doesn't know evil by experiencing it, by doing it. God's holy, holy, holy. So so there's got to be something else going on in this text. And so I did a lot of research, and the light bulb moment for me happened uh, reading Abraham Kuyper's book, Common Grace. Hmm. Uh, Volume one of Abraham Kuyper's Common Grace, it's on page like 900 and something of this, this epic Kuyperian tome. And... In, in the final two chapters, he unpacks that phrase, and it is just brilliant. Here's his, his exegesis in short. He says, knowing, the, the Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 3, knowing good and evil, does not convey like intellectual knowing or experiential knowing. It's, it's like a, a, what I could call a maker's knowing. You know something because you made it that way. Mm. And so it would be, here's kind of a silly uh, parallel, but it would be like, you know, after college, when I was living with uh, one of my roommates was an old high school friend named Dave Farrell. And Dave Farrell plays bass for the band Lincoln Park. And so he would come home from work and I'd get home from work around the same time. His work was hanging out in the studio and laying tracks for their next album. Uh, I'd hop into his car and listen to the day's tracks. And I would ask him questions like, hey, what effect are you using on your bass there? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, why that chord change? That seems like such a non sequitur, but it works. Who came up with that? And he knew the answers to every question because he had a, a maker's knowledge. Mm-hmm. He didn't know it just because he listened to it a bunch or studied the songs, but because he wrote them. He knew the answers because he made the song the way it was. And so God has a maker's knowing of his creation because he determines it to be what it is. He has a maker's knowledge. So this sheds some light on the serpent's temptation. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, meaning you get to be the maker. You get to be the creator. You get to define the meaning of things. And that's, that's followed by the very next phrase, knowing good and evil. And that, that phrase threw me for years and years. Like, we hear those terms as moral categories, good and evil. But in ancient Hebrew, there was this common tradition where you would cite opposites to describe everything in between. So, for example, I could say black and white. And in an ancient Hebrew, I'm referring to every color. Right. I could say um, the Beatles and Creed and it would be understood that I'm referring to every rock band by citing opposites. Like, right. Amazing, horrible band. Um, offense, no offense intended to, to the Creed fans out there. Um, <laughs> but let's be honest, come on. Uh, so, so if you take that phrase, good and evil, what's being said there is everything. God is the knowing maker of everything. He defines the meaning of our biology. Mm. He defines the meaning of marriage. He defines the meaning of sexuality. He defines the meaning of morality, of beauty, of truth. God, by being the sovereign creator, has that sovereign mandate to be the ultimate definer of reality. Mm. And so the original temptation to Adam and Eve was you can be like God. Knowing good and evil, i.e., you can be like God. You can be sovereign. You can be the knowing maker. You can define the meaning of everything. That's the original lie. Wow. And you saw the havoc that unleashed in Genesis 3. Yes. That is the same lie that is now being your, your original point was we're telling little kids this. Yeah. You know, I got four little ones and I see in so many, you know, kid aimed cartoons and everything and and Pixar movies. The driving moral of the story is essentially what the serpent was promising in Genesis three. Follow your heart, be true to yourself. Don't let anyone tell you how to think about anything. You can be the sovereign maker of your own identity. And we just, as Christians of the 21st century, we need to call that out for what it is. It is nothing less than a satanic lie being peddled to kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Because you know, I never thought I'd be a, a helicopter parent when it comes to watching over what my kids watch. Yeah, and I've I've almost had to. I've, I've not uh, not almost. I have. I, I I let them watch old cartoons that I grew up watching from the '80s, where yeah. it is the it, it, and they're they're typically actually pretty violent. And my wife has said, you know, these are really violent. I was like, but you know what? It's good triumphing over evil. And I would much rather talk to my kids about that than constantly be pausing and be like, yeah, that's totally pagan. That is totally not true. That is evil. Like I don't want to have to constantly explain transgenderism to my kids over a cartoon.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I get it, man. There's a game that, uh, that Oz Guinness uh, played with his kids back in the day, and I kind of took my cues from him. And, Uh, I've been playing it with my kids. He would play a game called Spot the Lie. Uh. And whenever his kids were watching something, uh, if they caught a lie, like, you know, Daddy, um, Elsa's saying no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's not freedom, that's bondage. Like if your kid starts picking up and you train them to to be learning about these things, then they win like a dollar or something. And so I've been playing that with with my kids and my 10 year old in particular is like really into that game right now and it's training her instead of just like, you can't watch any of this stuff. This stuff is forbidden. It's I'm training her because she's not, I don't want to bubble wrap her. Yeah. Right. I don't want to seal her off from the broader culture. I want her to enter it with biblical discernment. Mm. And so I found that to be pretty practical, even though she's getting the some out at it we won't be able to pay our mortgage next month. That's right.
0: It's breaking the bank. (laughs) Um, There's two things I'm I'm just thinking of. And just on justice a, how much should that, should that be the focus? And then my second question is about going back to um, knowing good and evil experience, Um, how much experience or knowledge um, plays into Um, when I I've encountered some people and I've done some evangelism with, or spoken to about the gospel, they say, you just don't understand because you're not gay. You know, you're not this, you're not this, 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 this. So I want to go, I want to, I like to tackle that, but, but the first, my first question about justice, a biblical justice, I'm thinking of Micah six, eight, I'll go ahead and read that. Um, he has told you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Um, yeah, you see it right much, there. Just, how much? How much of that um, should that? Where is the priority of that yeah. for the church, uh, for the individual? I mean, this, I have seen, I've seen some argue, look, that was the theonomic Israel. That's not the church's function. Yep. Or, you know, and so if you've got your eschatology completely wrong on this, um, that's going to be something in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Not to say that Christians can't do it outside of the church, right, you know, and, and be politically involved but that's not a church fo- focus
1: yeah that's a great question um so so let me reframe it like this um because there's a lot of sloppy language out there particularly when it comes to questions of social justice as... that whole
0: question was just sloppy
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's the way it's typically framed you hear it all the time social justice is quote a gospel issue yes the gospel Issue And that is just such a a hazy term that there's all kinds of ways that term can be a Trojan horse that we're loading up with all kinds of bad theology and all kinds of anti-biblical presuppositions. So think of it like this. Um, Would we say that being faithful to your spouse is a, just a, is, is a gospel issue? Would, would we say that um, not coveting your neighbor's stuff is a gospel issue? Would we say that not bearing false witness is a gospel issue, not showing partiality is a gospel issue? And you, you begin to see the, the problem with framing things that way. When we define the gospel from the scriptures, we, we see in First Corinthians 15, Paul just lays it flat out. He says, I passed on to you what was, in his language, uh, the Greek, it's in protois, which where we get proto or first, translations would have it, I passed on to you what was of first importance, the mm. number one priority, the main thing. Yeah, What was the main thing? The Leon, the gospel. And he doesn't leave us guessing on what the gospel is. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was resurrected on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, and least last of all to me, uh, and saved me by grace. Like, he just tells us flat out, this is the gospel. Yeah. You read the book of Acts, as the gospel was expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We have multiple evangelistic sermons recorded in there. When Peter stands up at Pentecost in Acts 2 and thousands of people get saved, we have the gospel that he declared.
0: Right.
1: He didn't say, the Romans are oppressive. Go and overturn Roman oppression. Go right. in and cancel um, the slave system.
0: Or the the Greek, uh, the Helena, Hel- the uh, what was it, the Greek? Um,
1: yeah, the Hellenist. Yeah. Hellenist. He, he doesn't. Give a series of imperatives Mm. instead. The gospel is an indicative, it's an announcement of what Jesus has done the death and resurrection of Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Every time uh, it's preached in the book of Acts, it's the same gospel that um, Jesus himself preaches again and again in the New Testament. I have an appendix in the book uh, where I show that. You know, the stereotype that Paul had a salvation by grace alone gospel, Jesus had a different gospel, is just a false stereotype. Mm. Jesus teaches salvation by grace alone. So we have to let the Bible itself define the gospel. And when we do that, we get the same message stretching from the Old into the New Testament. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, here's another question. If we keep first things first, And this is a principle that C.S. Lewis uh, spells out in a book called God in the Dock in a series of essays. Which one is it? it, It's uh, in God in the Dock.
0: God in the Dock, yeah.
1: Yeah, a collection of of essays. He has a a little uh, essay called uh, First Things. Uh, I think it's called First and Second Things. And he lays out this principle where he says, if you make a first thing the first thing, then oftentimes second things get thrown in as a bonus. But if you make some second thing the first thing, you not only lose the real first thing, you lose the second thing too, which sounds really abstract. So let me bring it down to earth a little bit. Um, let's, say, let's say you struggle with anxiety and you make um, not being anxious your first thing. Well, that's not the first thing. Loving God and loving people should be your first thing. And so by making not being anxious your first thing when it's not, you will actually lose the first and the second thing. You won't find yourself loving God or loving people well because you're so preoccupied with yourself. And instead of, and you'll lose the second thing too. Instead of becoming less anxious, the harder you try to beat anxiety, the more anxious you become.
0: Hmm.
1: Let, let me give another example. If, if a church makes being relevant its first thing, we want the culture to like us and accept us. It will miss out on the, fir- the real first thing. A church exists to revere God and to make him known. So if you replace reverence with relevance, then that church will lose the, the real first thing, it's reverence for God, but it will also lose the second thing. That church will become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But one more uh, quick example Uh, let's take somebody who's, who's going out to a party and they make their first thing. I want everybody to like me. Well, being liked isn't a real first thing. And so that person, we've probably all met somebody like that. Who's trying too hard. Who's trying so hard to be liked and accepted by everybody that they actually become obnoxious because they're too preoccupied with themselves and their social performance to genuinely care about anybody around them. Mm-hmm. If they went to the party instead with, how do I love my neighbors here? How do I be genuinely interested in their life?
0: Right.
1: They, they're putting the first thing first, and so they get the second thing thrown in. They become right. likable because they aren't preoccupied with their likability. Right. The church makes revering God its first thing becomes relevant because it hasn't made relevance its first thing. The person who's not fixated on not being anxious, but is focused on glorifying God and loving neighbor, will become less anxious. And the same thing holds true with social justice. And this is what's happening in churches around the country. Churches are making justice their first thing. Typically, justice has been redefined by what I call the social justice B movement. And here's the thing. Now, instead of the gospel being the first thing, which according to 1 Corinthians 15, it is en protois. It is the first thing. It is of first importance. The minute you make social justice your first thing, you lose the real first thing, the gospel, but you also lose the second thing. Social justice no longer becomes just. And so you end up losing both. That's mm-hmm. that's the plight we're in right now in, in 2020 and, and a whole lot of churches. And one of the reasons I wrote the book. Yeah, I, um,
0: I guess what, what is the avenue or the outlet that um, in, how do you inform Christians on how to do biblical justice? Because, you know, you, you share the example of Christians. Christians were the ones when in Rome there was the pandemic. They were running to the sick, whereas the Romans were fleeing to the hills. Yeah. Right. So the Christians were being informed um, at some point and in some place on um, Imago Day. Yep. So at what I guess what at what where. Um, if, if, if you're focusing on preaching the gospel, is it, is it Sunday school? Is it uh, Wednesday night prayer? Is that like where, where? How do you balance? How do you juggle those like, again, what's yeah. the, as far as the praxis of it?
1: Yeah, let, let's bring it real down to earth. So <clears throat> I, I've been building a case that, you, you know, you read Micah 6 eight. It's not what does the Lord suggest of you, it's what does the Lord require of you. Uh, in uh, Isaiah 1, you know, seek justice is a divine command, not suggestion. Um, so, So I've been arguing that the commands to do justice are not optional for the Christian, but they're also not the gospel. Just like telling the truth, just like being faithful to your spouse, just like not coveting your neighbor's stuff. Those are essentials to living a consistent Christian worldview, but they're not essential to the gospel itself. We need to have our law gospel distinction in place or we lose the good news. We lose the first thing. So, if we think about it in that light social justice or let's just say justice is not the gospel it's not part of the gospel when you read the actual gospel presentations in the book of acts that becomes clear rather i would argue it follows from the gospel real justice biblical justice follows from the gospel so when you keep the first thing first what follows on the heels of that whether it was you know abolishing infanticide and the Roman empire, whether it was helping the plague, whether it was um, abolishing slavery in the UK, the U S real justice follows from keeping the first thing, the first thing. So, so let's bring that really down to earth. What does that look like? Well, i found that if I'm not preaching the gospel to myself on a daily basis, I don't do justice. Mm. And so for me, you ask where does it start? I'd say it has a place in, in Sunday school and, and from the pulpit. But, but on a daily basis, bringing it really down to earth, preach the gospel to yourself daily. And what you will find the more you do that is it changes your heart. It, it recalibrates your affections so that when you see a victim of real injustice, you are propelled to do something about it. Mm-hmm. in a a biblical way. And so let me just give a real kind of simple tip on how I have been doing this uh, for the last few years. And I found it really, really helpful. And I unpack all this in my last book, uh, Reflects, Becoming Yourself by Mirroring the Greatest Person in History. Uh, In my Reflect book, I lay out the ABCs of the cross and I say, okay, what happened on the cross? A, Jesus is my atoner. He's my atoner. So I was enemies with God, but Jesus through his cross work has made me at one with my creator. He's brought reconciliation. B, on the cross, Jesus is my battlefield hero. Meaning, you know, going back to Genesis three fifteen, the Proto-Evangelium, he crushed the serpent's head. Mm-hmm. In Galatians, he, he, by dying on the cross, he led Satan and his minions on a, on a shame march through the universe. He's crushed my foe. So thank you, Jesus, for being my battlefield hero. A, right. B, C, C, Jesus, you're my chain breaker. I was in bondage to sin. I was a slave to my, my sin nature. Through, your, through the power of your cross work, you're my liberator. You're my chain breaker. You've set me free from slavery to sin and Satan. D, Jesus, you're my defense attorney. You know, the language of 1 John 2, when we sin, uh, we have an advocate before the father. It's it's the Greek word parakletos, which was a word used to describe a first century defense attorney. You're a criminal. You need a parakletos to come and plead your not guilty sentence. Jesus, that's one of the titles for Jesus. He's our defense attorney.
0: Right.
1: He's the one going to the father and pleading our not guilty sentence, pleading for our justification. And he never loses a case, right? because he has a knock-down, drag-out argument of his own shed blood. Uh, so, Jesus, thank you for being my atoner, my battlefield hero, my, my chain-breaker, my defense attorney. E, thank you for being my eternal priest. You entered the Holy of Holies. You have made the once-for-all sacrifice so that I can stand confidently in the presence of absolute holiness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and last but not least, the F, <clears throat> thank you, Jesus, for being the forsaken son. Jesus. <clears throat> Father, Father, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crucified outside the city. He's the ultimate outcast. He's excluded. Why? Well, if you read Paul's theology, so that we can be invited into the city around the dinner table as adopted sons and daughters of God. And so. Just preaching that, I'll, I'll do that on a daily basis. It might take me five minutes. It might take me 60 seconds. But I'll just go through the ABCs of the cross, preaching the gospel to myself. And having done that for a few years, I find that it's, it becomes really hard to be um, apathetic when I confront some kind of injustice that I see. And so I would say that's the most fundamental thing to doing justice in your everyday life is keeping the first thing the first thing in your own heart by becoming a missionary every day on the closest mission field to you your own heart and mind
0: what happens when we fail to do justice Justice A? what happens when we fail yeah you know i i think about i'm trying to remember where i either i re- read um, you say this or i heard you, you say said in a in a, a a lecture but you mentioned you, you gave the kind of the uh, the dichotomy between um well not dichotomy but the, you gave the two examples but the the, the juxtapose of the early christians but then you also mentioned the other issue in the 1980s oh yeah yeah, right
1: yeah for those of the listeners who haven't heard that before i, I walked through a contrast between <clears throat> which is even more relevant in the 2020s, with all the pandemic madness happening. Um, in the second century, you know, Rodney Stark, the great Christian sociologist, <clears throat> talks about how when that mysterious plague broke out and the pagans were running for the hills away from the plague, it was, like I said earlier, it was our brothers and sisters who ran to their bedsides. And it wasn't like you have to agree with biblical sexual ethics or we aren't going to dignify or love you, Um, it was, we're going to love you as an image bearer of God,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: regardless. Um, And and that was really powerful, a a testimony that made, in Rodney Stark's analysis, it made the gospel that much more credible across the Roman Empire, because they saw these Christians who were talking about a dying Jesus, a Jesus dying for our sins, are literally willing to die for us and our families. And so we have you know, historical sources from the 2nd century into the 3rd century where the running commentary of the non-Christian world about the Christians was, quote, behold how they love one another. Mm-hmm. That was the running commentary from the non-believing world. Well, fast forward to the 1980s. You have the parallel situation. A mysterious plague breaks out. It's ravaging, in particular, the homosexual community. It's shutting down people's immune systems. And and when HIV hits in the early 80s, where's the church of the late 20th century? The church of the late 20th century was right where the non-church was in the second century, running for the hills.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Instead of running to the bedsides of gay image bearers and treating them with dignity as image bearers Mm -hmm. and loving them through that. And so I'd say that, that's a big part of, to your question. What happens when we don't pursue justice is we undermine the credibility to be able to talk meaningfully about salvation by grace through Christ.
0: Is there ever any satisfaction to um, the, the pain or the hurt of unbelievers even believers of where Christians have failed. So here's, here's an example. Um, a couple years ago, the PCA repented for its indifference to, to racism in the church. And I, I wonder at what point um, for this, how often, and is there ever a point where uh, re, um, apologies and repentance like that is, is satisfied? Um, or is it something that, that, that generation after generation is going to have to keep going back and repenting of? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the the short answer is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the ultimate, ultimate satisfaction was taken care of in full for all time and eternity on the cross by Jesus. So we have to start there. Um, but in terms of issues like you're talking about, there, there, I think there's a place for a sense of, you know, I've had several conversations with um, homosexuals who have been really treated as if they aren't image bearers of God
0: mm.
1: by Christians. Right. And so I'll often say something like, you know, I'm not like, a pope representing catholicism i'm not like some exemplar or voice box for all all christendom but for what it's worth just as somebody who loves jesus i just i just want to say sorry that you experienced that yeah at the hands of people claiming to follow jesus yeah that's a that's a real conversation opener that's a that's a real um real way into having a meaningful conversation with them Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of wounds, not just, um, talking about sexuality, but also with race. Yeah. Um, there, there's places in that conversation to, to say, look, there were times that so-called Christians, self-declared Christians weren't just complicit with say Jim Crow segregation or lynching or, um, slave trade in the antebellum South, but we're actually trying to twist scripture to support such racism. Right. That's inexcusable. And, and to clarify to, you know, black brothers and sisters, we recognize the scandal of that, the heresy of that, the hypocrisy of that, and, and we want to work with you to ensure that that doesn't happen again that we're living consistently with, yeah, the Imago Day and the gospel.
0: That was my dog, Bavink. (laughs) Admitting my (laughs)
1: points. It's
0: it's that time of year when (laughs) the doorbell is constantly being rung because of packages.
1: Well, Uh, hey, let let me just quickly jump back. You you brought up a question that that we kind of... Um, blazed past about epistem- minutes ago. but it was the question of um, essentially what's called standpoint epistemology thank you was, yes I have um, special access to truth yeah. because I'm in this or that oppressor group you Josh sorry man you, you, you don't have a seat at the table you don't have a voice in this conversation um, because of your, your straight cisgender um, white maleness yeah. Uh, this, this epistemology, this, this way of thinking, is, is popping up in the church all over the place in the last it's five years. everywhere. It's everywhere. So, so think of it like this. There, there's been a series of um, epistemological shifts. So shifts in how, as a society, we think you get at truth. So if we hopped in a time machine and went back, say, 60 or 70 years when the zeitgeist the spirit of the age was more of a modernist mindset then as you're doing evangelism you would bump into objections like well christianity isn't true based on the evidence so here's some evidence mm-hmm. so, so you're speaking in a modernist framework there well fast forward you know two or three decades after that and postmodernism comes into vogue where people aren't rejecting Christianity because they don't think it has enough evidence. They're rejecting Christianity because they think it doesn't have enough tolerance. They think it's too exclusive. It's too, this is the only way that feels too narrow. So, so people under postmodernism, many were less concerned with whether it checks out with the facts. They just felt like, well, it was mean because it's it's closed minded was the stereotype. So the evangelists had to speak to that. So we've now entered what I, I argue in some of my articles is a post postmodern era, which is another epistemological shift. Yeah. In the post postmodern era, Christianity is rejected not because they don't think it's true based on evidence, not because people think it's, say, intolerant, uh, but rather it's rejected because it's perpetrated by white people and men. Yeah. And so that, that's become a new epistemology that's very trendy in our day, where you can be shut out of a conversation simply based on the lack of melanin in your skin cells, or simply based on whether you have a Y chromosome. And I think that that idea is insidious for lots of reasons. One of them is that it undermines the authority of scripture, for one, because now your real source of inerrancy is the feelings of somebody who who's oppressed and falls into a certain group. Um, number two, it, it is literally prejudiced. The word prejudice means to prejudge. So I am prejudging another image bearer of God based on whether I think they're worth listening to or whether they need to just shut up based purely on their appearance. That's prejudice, plain and simple. That's. Yeah. What in biblical categories would be called, you know, partiality, which is condemned in uh, in the book of James. The third problem with this kind of standpoint epistemology is that ideas and doctrines. <laughs> this is going to sound a little crass, but ideas don't have penises. Ideas don't have X and Y chromosomes. Yeah. Ideas yeah. don't have melanin, right? And so you could take. Everything I've said on on the podcast today, and you could find it said more articulately by somebody like say Vadi Bacham. You could find my arguments against abortion, articulated better by, say, um, Sidney Callahan. You could find my presentation of the gospel today and put it in the mouth of say, Rosaria Butterfield. You could take my arguments against social justice bees redefinition of racism, way more articulately from say Thomas Sowell or Coleman Hughes or Shelby Steele, or we just lost um, one of the best, uh, Walter Williams who passed away yesterday. You can take all these ideas and transport them from my mouth into the mouth of somebody who doesn't fit into my uh, level on the pyramid of oppression. Those ideas don't all of a sudden become magically true because somebody else is saying them. Ideas are true or false based on whether they jive with reality, not the chromosomes, not the melanin levels of the person articulating.
0: Yeah, it, the, the, the scary thing about um, this um, the standpoint epistemology, you know, I, I think of um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and his speech, about that he had a dream that his children would not be judged by their color, but by their character. And um, you see that now today in the workforce and there's talks about how businesses need to be completely diverse and have, you know, they need to be all inclusive in order to be legitimate business. And you just think like, so character matters no more.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As long this, as,
0: as I have a kid that is, has enough melanin and identifies as this and that, then I know they could be successful in the world.
1: Yep. And th- this stuff is just, it's pernicious, but it's also really patronizing because it tends to assume, based on, say, melanin levels, that you're, if I now diversify my board of directors – And let's say I add two more black people to it and get the ratio more equitable. um, That that level of melanin corresponds to a worldview that there is quote, now the black voice is being heard. And that is so patronizing. When I was writing, you know, confronting injustice, I have, you know, 12 diverse voices at the end of each chapter um, sharing their stories. And and these have become some of my dearest friends over the last few months. And, and they, they just reiterate this to me again and again, this, this nonsense of quote, the black voice. And and the deeper I dug into that, um, and in terms like intersectionality, uh, terms like white privilege, terms like white fragility, terms like whiteness, um, the redefinition of racism as privilege plus power, These are the things that in the mainstream today are considered the black voice. And if you don't buy into those concepts, you, you are the oppressor, you're, you're white supremacist and and you're muting black voices. Well, here's the problem. The concept of white privilege came from a white far left feminist named Peggy McIntosh. The term white fragility came from a white far left, um, sociologist, race educator named Robin D'Angelo. The term whiteness to describe, you know, the evils of our hegemonic culture comes from a white far left woman um, by the name of Judith Katz. The idea of racism as prejudice plus power comes from a white uh, uber-feminist woman uh, by the name of Patricia biddle And so, the idea that we're listening to the black voice if we're getting woke to concepts like white privilege and white fragility and whiteness, it's just false. What we're really mistaking for quote, the black voice is a far left white feminist voice. And a lot of Christians are just being taken in by these terms, thinking, being duped into thinking, well, now I'm taking my black brothers and sisters more seriously. No, You're just being duped by far leftist white ideology. So I know I might get some, uh, some heated responses to that, uh, but check out the book. I document all this stuff. I'm not writing this to, to win popularity points because I'm well aware um, (laughs) I'll be tarred and feathered for, for saying a lot of
0: this. (laughs) Are you getting any, any kind of pushback at, uh, at the seminary?
1: Uh, Not at the seminary, um, but in general, yes, and it's just kind of the um, the previews of things to come. So I'm fully expecting that um, folks on the left are going to call me every name in the book. Um, that that has already happened. Yeah, uh, I've been called every name in the book. Um, but what was surprising to me this week was. Realizing that I'm I'm really caught in the crossfire, so I had um, Zondervan uh, has started their their social media marketing campaign, and so they released a, a handful of quotes uh, on their media outlets. And man, I have been called in the last seven days um, every name in the book. You know, I'm a Marxist, even though I'm writing an entire book debunking Marxism. Uh, I'm a heretic, um, even though I'm Holding to the historic, you know, Christian gospel as affirmed by Westminster and Calvin, um, I'm, you name it, and so it's fascinating to me just how easily triggered people are on both sides these days. Because yeah. the Zondervan promo included the word social justice, I was immediately dismissed as a far left social justice warrior snowflake by yeah. people who never bothered to read the book. And it's just straight up slander is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I've I've been getting it from from both ends, which I knew full well going in. Um that's just kind of the nature of the beasts these polarized days.
0: That is funny and and sad. I mean just that 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 you're being called a Marxist and social I mean I I know you I know you personally, but um (laughs) just I mean if you read the book, I mean that again the oneist. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is crazy. Thaddeus, thanks for being on the program.
1: Hey, it's a joy to be with you, Josh, and miss you, brother. Can't wait for our uh, symposium coming yeah. up. In the-
0: this concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange Podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line. Let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, This podcast is only
1: made possible from friends like you.